Okay, say something for me, Shadi. Okay, how's this? Ah, I can hear you beautifully. Okay, good. Oh, perfect. And even, I think, Lou Graham Smith says that he, we're good now. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know who he is, but uh, thank you, Luke, for letting okay. us know. But, ba- <laughs> but basically, look, um, as I was saying, for those of you who have just joined, uh, I'll just kind of repeat the now completely shut. What? Demir, yeah, just, are we fine? Keep going. I think we're fine. People. Okay, fine. <laughs> I think the echoes may be shut, but keep trying. People yeah, yeah, whatever. I can't hear you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just to, to recap for the people who've just come on, and, you know, we're surprisingly sort of on time. It's 4.04. Yeah. And um, not to indulge in stereotypes, but we Arabs are not known for our timeliness. So, in that sense, I'm trying to go against my cultural and biological roots because that's important cultural culture is sticky but culture isn't everything and we can go beyond our cultural foundations and it's just worth stating for, you know so no we don't have to be essentialist here okay no we're not we're yeah but not basically that. i don't know more serious no you know i've just been you know so I'm, I'm in my childhood home and if for people who remember my background in my apartment in dc this obviously looks different there's some uh Things behind me, like Dean's, uh, you know, special student or Dean's list or whatever they used to call it when we were in high school or whatever. So that's where I am. This is where I grew up, basically. So all of you have a chance to see this. You might not see it again because usually I don't record from my childhood home. Um, But I have been here in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania um, since, I guess, um, a little bit over a week. So this is like, you know, we've had a little bit of a family reunion, my parents, my little brother. And so we're experiencing this very challenging moment. But together, we've, we've had a lot of dinner table and lunch table conversations about what this means. We're not, um, you know, we have different opinions in, in, in our family. So my brother... Uh, keeps me in check and sometimes he'll be like hey Shadi like look you know what you just tweeted that that was out of touch you're not you're not conveying what's what should be in the moment now you're going you know so I try to listen to him and sometimes you'll see me tweeting something I'll delete the tweet because I respect my brother a lot but so we've had a lot of interesting conversations and I think there's also what what might have been for me, a sense of anger at at the kind of left nihilists who are justifying the burning down of police precincts and destruction of private businesses. I mean, that was really bothering me on Twitter yesterday because I was surprised. I didn't know these people. There were that many people who are like, yeah, burning police stations is good. I mean, to me, that's just anathema to any, you know, however much you dislike the police, however angry or outraged you are. What you know, if you're saying burning things down is good, then then we've lost the minimal foundations of democratic life. And there's nothing we agree on. And it's every man for himself. It's anarchy and it's nihilistic. So I guess I would call these people left nihilists. And they were very prominent on Twitter. And I, I felt weird that there were accusations of racism against anyone who was like, wait a second, burning down police stations, that's not good, is it? And that became a somewhat controversial or polarizing position. And I'm like, this is bonkers. But I feel like when people saw the images yesterday, I think we moved into a new phase of sadness and a sense of fear and foreboding about what's to come. I think reasonable people by and large realize that 
looting is bad, burning down things is bad, and it actually hurts the very people who live in these communities. And that's what makes it that's what makes it so offensive is that in the name people who are speaking in the name of the dispossessed or whatever, they're they're what they're supporting is hurting the very people they claim they claim to be in solidarity with. So that there's something morally abhorrent about that in my view. But I would just say like when we were watching images of what was happening in Philly. So I'm in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, 30 minutes outside of Philly. Philly, I guess, is our family city. And my my, my parents love Philly, and we've spent more and more time in Philly, um, you know, in recent years when I come back to visit them. They love their city, and when they saw those images, they had a very, I think, a very natural, and which is the predominant response throughout the country. My parents are just what we might call regular non-politicized Democrats. They they aren't on Twitter. They don't understand that debate. They don't even know what left nihilists are. So and they're like they're, they got really sad. They're like this is happening to our city. So our city. Tell, yeah. Tell tell me before you before you go on. I I, I you know uh, I went out in D.C. We can talk about that yesterday. I went out last night uh, and sort of saw it up close. Uh, you know as the some of the tear gas was flying and some of the looting. But then I walked around this morning and it's actually pretty limited. How bad is it in in, uh, in, in Philly right now? So I'm not totally up to speed, but last night, I mean, there was definitely like proper looting on some of the main streets with stores that we used to we used to go to and areas that we used to go together as a family close to major parks and all that. Um, so I think definitely in Philly, as far as I can tell, it was worse last night than it was um, in DC. Um, but maybe Demir, do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, cause we, cause I'm not in DC, so we haven't hung out or whatever yeah, in the last actually, few days. Honestly, so I, let me ask you a few questions before we uh, yeah, yeah. talk about, uh, so for example, um, on the left nihilism, you sort of rushed through that and you said your brother was saying you're out of touch on some of this stuff. <laughs> do, do yeah. you tell, well, unpack that for me a little bit. Do you think that, that did your brother tell you specifically on that, that, you know, to tone that down a bit because the anger is justified. Have you modified your your thoughts on some of that? Having talked to your father and sort of escaping from the Twitter bubble, uh, bubble. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what's the what do you what do you mean, and how did you how did that work out for you? Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, so in my in in my um, in my frustration at the Twitter discourse, I was like. These people are yeah, sort of like what I said, like how how is it that there are these prominent folks on Twitter who claim to be leftists who are basically taking pleasure or not – maybe not even taking pleasure, but they're saying that it's justified or using language that I think is problematic, that burning down a police station is justified. I mean – or that this is a legitimate thing. This is legitimate anger. No. when you, To me, that's when we cross from the from what is legitimate – which is anger and protest to what is illegitimate, which is burning down government property or private property. However much you hate the U.S. government, I'm sorry, we have laws and you're not supposed to burn down a government property. And I feel weird even. So I guess like there was a frustration in the sense that things that to me are very basic and minimal that – we as citizens of a democracy, we agree on a social contract. The social contract might suck. It might be broken. And I get that that's where a lot of people are at. But so anyway, that's what I was sort of commenting on. But, you know, sometimes I get, you know, I'll tweet something along those lines 
and it, I guess what my brother meant is, is that it, it's not really – he's like people are angry, Shaddy. Be aware of that and don't you know try to speak in line with the anger that people are legitimately feeling. This isn't a time to kind of be like um, talking about these political theory concepts around democratic minimalism or being very clinical about what is effective in protest. He's like, Shaddy, that might all be accurate. But people are angry and you should you should you should express solidarity with their anger before you start going into this other mode mm-hmm. of the critical analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which so you know you so you know, I listen to my brother and I try to be responsive to that and I, I appreciate that he keeps me in check in that respect. So, you know, I'm trying you know, I tr- I'm trying and then this is where I'm trying to find what is the middle ground? Like how do we talk about this in a way that is that is constructive and uh, that gets at the nuance because yeah. um yeah anyway so that's well yeah. so so you know uh you tweeted something uh i just saw like a couple hours before it came on to this thing um there was some pretty dramatic footage of uh in minneapolis those uh, national guards going by just telling people to get into their homes and and you know firing uh anti-riot rounds into some people they're clearly on their porch just sort of taking, you know, iPhone footage of, of that. Um, that that seemed to, to rattle you a bit. I wanna I wanna I wanna talk about uh, that a little bit because for me um, it was interesting. We were like me and, and, and two of our friends. We we went out yesterday. I went out with one of the friends uh, during the day to sort of get a sense of it uh, as dusk was coming. And then we we returned around ten o'clock when it was getting a little hairy and people were shooting. Um, Tear gas and firecrackers are being thrown at cops, and and then there was some looting afterwards, which we got front row seats to. Um, but I, I want to talk to you about sort of you know how this is being perceived on you know through images, through social media, on TV versus what's actually going on, and how do you talk about this middle ground, as you said? Because I think that's really important, like basically uh, how we're going to have these conversations at all. So I don't know. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about that that footage about those uh, Minneapolis National Guards uh, charging through the suburbs. Um, I don't know if you have that. Maybe you can retweet it for people or people watching us now just going to shotties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was too, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a very shocking images of, and you know, uh, it, uh, you know. They're images that um, make you think of a more militarized – of a militarized society and people can say that there's an over-militarization of the police and I'm, I, I think that is – that is true and you know what to do about it i can't really i mean i don't have clear answers on that but you have national guardsmen walking through or just you know in a very aggressive way shouting and talking to citizens as if they're not citizens as if they're subjects to be controlled um and um and firing riot rounds i don't know exactly what that consists of but a really frightening frightening footage and um and my you know my fear is that um as critical as I've been of what I would call the left nihilist position on this, I'm 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 someone who also thinks that the over, the securitization and the militarization of American public life and and the police forces as part of that is a is a pretty is a potentially dangerous thing and it's not something I want to see more of. So when I see that as the reaction to 
to anarchy or looting and then the National Guard comes in and feels that they're empowered or emboldened to kind of like rampage, I mean, um, whatever word, rampage through residential areas and treating citizens in that manner. I mean, that's obviously scary. So that's why, you know, we, we have a more nuanced picture now where a lot of people seem to be in the wrong simultaneously. There's a lot of blame that goes around. So my anger that was initially, I'm like, you know, um, you know, fuck these nihilists who who say quite. I, mean, I used to think when people said burn it down. I mean, I you know both both you and I, Demir, we have a nihilistic streak, but it's more I guess ironic. We're not actual nihilists. Mm. We don't actually want to burn things down. Mm. So people can use metaphors like, oh, the system's a disaster. We should just like the whole system should be replaced, burn the system down, whatever. People are saying things like that. I always used to think that was a metaphor. Right. For a lot for most of these people, what you find out, though, is that for a lot of these folks, it's not a metaphor. They mean it literally. They want to they want to burn the whole system down. And it angers me when they say when they compare this to the Arab Spring and then they say, well, Shadi, like you've seen this in other countries, you've been on the ground there. And that's offensive to me. Because this is not, you know, this is this is a, this is my country. This is America. Those, those countries, which I also have affiliations with to some degree, like Egypt, which is also in some sense my country of origin, and you know, I'm uh, whatever. But you know, that that's a dictatorship, and for people to kind of use my country of origin or other countries in the Middle East as props to basically make arguments about a completely different context or basically, if you will, um, weaponizing or deploying Egypt to say, oh, well, America's kind of a dictatorship too, or a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Are you, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? If you, if this was happening in Egypt, you know what they would do to you? They would commit a massacre and hundreds of people could be killed in in mere days or weeks or whatever. The army would come in and would start shooting. That's what they would do. They would arrest thousands of people on the spot. I mean, so I so I guess there's just because of my because of my experiences in the Middle East, I do react a bit sensitively to people misusing the memory of the Arab Spring. Yeah, I. I don't know. I, I I have a fair bit to say, and I'm not exactly sure how to even begin unpacking it. Um, part of it is, uh, you know, on the question of looting is one of these questions like who is doing this looting? And there's been, I think, a, a, a pretty um, uh, concerted effort to uh, try and split apart, uh, you know, the legitimate cause of grief and anger. Uh, and the protest movement of Black Lives Matter with, um, you know, whether it's allegations that it's, you know, white nationalists coming in, whether it's a um, uh, talk that it's, uh, you know, these like Antifa people coming in and, and, and breaking stuff up. Um, and, you know, there's just sort of a question of what exactly is going on. I think what you're saying about, you know, the difference between what's happening now and, you um, uh, uh, you know, like the Arab Spring or, or, you know, what was going on in Tahrir. This is very impressionistic, and this sort of gets to what I want to sort of start unpacking, which is one is being the problem of these images that are just flowing around everywhere, even on CNN and, and things. Now, again, I have no access to what it's like down there in Philly on the ground. I have no access to what it's like down on um, in um, – 
uh, Minneapolis. And I, I, I say all of this caveating it that uh, in no way do I mean to, to minimize the, the anger that is um, driving all of this or the, the legitimate grievances behind it. However, what struck me yesterday, and let me say again, you know, to even narrow it further, uh, yesterday I didn't go to what was happening on the mall because on the mall in front of the Capitol there was where is where the protest started. Um, it, I only showed up a little later when it was already in front of the White House. Um, so maybe in front of the mall it was a broader based kind of protest mm. where middle class people and maybe families came and it, you know, uh, from all accounts it was very peaceful on the mall. But there's always this sort of narrative that comes in, which is, oh, you know, it's peaceful protesters hijacked by like, you know, far, you know, left agitators and stuff like that. I think it's really a lot more complicated than that, what's happening, because by the time we got in front of the White House and this was still during the day and it was still peaceful, mostly, um, it wasn't like middle class. It wasn't families. Uh, it was, uh, you know, African-Americans uh, and you know, uh, clearly sympathetic, uh, but all young, uh, some white people and, you know, mixed race, everything. Hold on just one second. Let me cancel this. Hold on. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is that, um, how do I put it? It's, it's uh, while it was mixed, at that point, it wasn't a, a very... Um, it didn't feel like a kind of mass movement, at least what I saw in D.C. It's, it, it seemed to me like a bunch of activists. There was like often at these protests, there are, uh, uh, you know, there's kind of a excited, festive mood. Lots of fuck the police, lots of Black Lives Matter, lots of sort of mixed messages going on. But already then, during the sort of peaceful phase, there was this this element of just sort of provoking, you know, the guards that were set up in front of the White House. Um, and then we left after a while, came back. Provoking them in what sense? Well, I don't know, like throwing bottles at them and stuff like that. You know, not, not like a peaceful okay. protest. I mean, not glass bottles, plastic bottles. Sometimes they look yeah. empty. I don't know what was actually happening. Um, but the interesting thing was then, you know, show up a couple hours later when uh, already tear gas was flying and it was a lot more hostile. And, you know, again, this is anecdotal. It's impossible to really tell, especially to, you know, I wasn't even doing journalism. I was just sort of observing, walking around. And um, but it's it, it wasn't like a markedly different group of people that was, you know, in front of the White House then. And that was, you know, um, uh, uh, that was there during the day. And then it was there at night, sort of really when it got really heated. And the atmosphere was kind of the same, it was this kind of giddy excitement and then I just want to end on this little, you know, bit of anecdote with just a, a little thing about the dangers of these images and stuff that happens. So I'm taking a video and I have this video. I don't I'm not going to actually put it up on social media because I think it'll it'll do a lot of bad. But at one moment, um, a bunch of protesters, um, I would say, I don't know, I didn't go and look at it again and try and do some sort of count, but African-Americans, you know, well represented in the group, pulled down the American flag, and there was chants about burn it down, burn it down, and then they burnt the flag. And, you know, if I was a right-wing provocateur, I would have sent that footage to Fox, and then all of you have it as like, black people hate America, burning the flag, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, you know, this thing, that little experience just drove, drove home for me how 
uh, how mediated all of this is. And this is, again, this is not me saying uh, that I have any insight of like how it is anywhere else. I'm just talking about what I saw there in D.C. Um, and yes, you know, uh, on the one hand, it was, I think, you know, largely the same group of people that were protesting that were sort of getting a little bit more violent. It wasn't that large group of people. It wasn't a broad-based sort of like society is rising up sort of thing. It was like a bunch of younger people, some angry, um, but also just sort of excited about the thing. And then when that was dispersed after a while, they broke up into groups and went looting. Uh, I got some footage of people throwing, you know, breaking into stores. Uh, one liquor store was knocked over. And then I went home. I was like, all right, I've seen enough of this stuff. Point is, is like, I'm, I'm, that experience, I'm not going to make any bigger point because I have no bigger point, but that experience really drove home for me uh, how much a lot of this stuff is interesting to think about how most people are experiencing through, through just basically watching on TV or worse even still on Twitter. Like if I put like that five minute clip of a bunch of black kids like burning the American flag on Twitter and said like, this is the face of the protest. You can imagine, you can imagine the kind of, the kind of horse shit that would come out of that. So I'm not going to do that. That's it's, uh, or even it's, it, but, but let's say you posted it and you said this was a very small, subsection of the overall group it is just something that i captured you you'd still be well served to not post that because yeah, the be message used. i mean the, yeah, yeah yeah um so so which i think you know raises some interesting questions about you know how do people report because when people say well you know facts are facts and you know for people who have listened to the podcast they know that we don't actually think me and you demir that facts are merely facts yeah. facts are part of narratives they can yeah. be they can be wielded. Um, starting premises matter, and people read into the facts that happen based on their their um, you know preconceived worldview. So you know um, people would take obviously images like that for and and do with them things that we wouldn't be comfortable with. Um, when you were watching those the, those folks in the looting stage of that, you said that some of them were angry. Um, you said some of them were excited. I guess I'm just curious. To what extent did you get a sense the people how how do you, how did you sense the anger what does anger look like expressed and the people who are merely excited and not angry what does it mean what does that look like for someone to be excited I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's a sense that you know there's an argument that I'm I, that you know I basically support in its its broad strokes that a lot of these grievances has, have been building up over time and what we know is that sometimes things quite literally kind of explode in a moment after that after being pent up for a long time and I also wonder the fact that people have been under lockdown for several months that there's already been this sense of dread building this sense that something's not right this sense of you know, the economic situation is getting worse. People's livelihoods are being destroyed. There is this sense that can sometimes be overstated, of course, but a sense that the world, you know, America is entering this very dark phase that the world is, quote unquote, falling apart. And then, you know, you have a trigger moment, a catalyst, and then the anger comes out in, in various unpredictable ways. So I, I, I'm in no position to be able to look into people's hearts and I'm just sort of trying to tell you honestly I mean it was just an impression I, I don't think there's a any sort of fine line between 
between excitement and anger and what motivated it. I mean, I think I think there was a you know clearly a trigger moment. Uh, people are organizing online. Uh, they decided that this was you know uh, uh, telegenic enough of a, a police uh, murder to uh, really be able to motivate people and really capture the imagination because that's how protests work. Um, and uh, and you know so so. Um, they went for it, and I think it, it drew out all sorts of people. It's interesting to me that what I saw in the protests didn't draw out, like, you know, again, middle class, uh, like a bigger group. It was it was mostly young. Again, only what I saw, only in D.C. and only in one part of it. But it was mostly young, kind of like anti-establishment-y and African-American, you know, and whatever overlap there is there as well. Uh, but young, not not like... I, I, you know, I saw in the news in D.C. that some, you know, uh, 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 pastors did come out earlier in the day. I saw no evidence of that. It was just sort of, you know, young kids with placards uh, there for some kind of, you know, excitement ultimately is what it was. And, and once they shut it down, it, it, uh, it did spill out into just sort of opportunistic uh, looting and rioting, which is yeah. bad. Now, look, uh, the only other thing that sort of comes to mind in all of this is, is the is the political stuff. I see some of our commenters as they're reading are saying, you know, they're from Europe, it looked really scary, like this was, you know, civil war, and another commenter is saying it's not even close to 1968. Yeah, I, you know, I wasn't alive in 68, but from talking to people, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think this is that at all. Um, now, uh, you know, on the, the, the thing about 68 and in general, there's this great book by Rick Perlstein called Nixon Land, which uh, I think is just a, a really excellent read and, and, and a good read right now. And it gets back to the question of this, these like mediated images and, and how people are experiencing it, because I, there's a good this is like whole section in Nixon Land. Where he talks about uh, how, you know, the, with this American cities burning and the riots uh, engulfing the country. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have Democrats uh, not really coming out against it and to a certain extent saying that, well, we deserve this for our sins and, you know, all the, the horrible stuff. And then this, the, this uh, you know, uh, reasonably failed politician at that point, not that failed, I mean, he reasonably successful, but but comes out and, and starts talking about, about law and order, you know, like, uh, no, this is not okay that our cities are burning. It's actually really messed up. And what's great about that thing is that he, he really puts you in like the living room chair of uh, a middle American watching television uh, before Nixon's election. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that sort of sense of like, what the hell is going on to my country? Well, so, you know, after last night, I, I, I have a, you know, I don't want to say that this is a, that this is nothing or there's nothing to see here or there's no cause for alarm or even to, like I said, I want to stress over and over, I'm not minimizing anyone's anger or legitimacy of their grievances. Um, but I, I wonder and worry a little bit, especially as people say that, you know, on TV and on Twitter, this looks like civil war and like the, the wheels are coming off. Um, uh, you know, maybe maybe the effect is the same as if it's as bad as it was in 1968 because it's being transmitted in such a way, in such a dramatic way. And you get these like clips. That guy who posted that Minneapolis clip, I went and looked at some of the other stuff he was posting, you know, and it's just like these these clips of police just beating people and driving cars into crowds and 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 pepper spraying people yeah. in the face. 
And it's all out of context. I don't know. I don't know what the hell happened in that. Again, I'm not saying that cops aren't bullies. I'm not. I'm not like a some sort of like uh, you know <laughs> fan of this stuff. Like cops do this sort of stuff. It's 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 hideous. But I, you know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of of just shit flying right now, especially on Twitter. Like completely decontextualized, and it's interesting. It's interesting the extent to which. Um, uh, these things are, are are having an effect and getting a life of their own. So anyway, that, those are my those are my uh, yeah yeah. Basically, for well, me. you know, on on the on the Nixon comparison, which I think is quite important, um, in the sense that you know history doesn't repeat itself, but I mean, you know, we can draw basic insights that there's going to be at least a significant some you know a significant cross section of voters who see these images. And um, are are going to be primed in a way where they're more likely to vote for Trump than they otherwise would be. I don't want to I, I don't know what the numbers would be on that, but there does seem to be a lot of academic literature on the effects after 68. Um, and there was actually a Princeton professor who got, you know, was involved in some controversy for just stating academic findings on Friday night and then on, on Saturday. And he was just making a very basic, I think, intuitive point that, um, first of all, we know that writing has a very destructive effect on the economic well-being of cities, especially the poorest people who live in these cities over the subsequent decades, that it can actually be very difficult to recover. So people might minimize the protests in Minneapolis and, the, and then the riots subsequently, but Minneapolis could very well suffer for decades to come because of this particular moment. That's one. Sure. But the more important point was he was doing a counterfactual. Uh, I didn't know exactly how he did it empirically, but basically he was saying that um, Nixon and the Republicans gained something like, I don't know, like two to five percent in certain among certain demographics of voters because of um, because of the rioting after in 68 and afterwards, and that Humphrey would have actually won in 68 if it wasn't for those riots. So basically, if you hold all other variables equal, but just the riots being the, um, the variable of interest here, that that was enough to shift the election one way in, in a particular in a particular direction. And, you know, not that I mean, whether Trump wins is not the most important issue at this particular moment in time, although it probably is the most important issue a month from now or two months from now. So it is worth thinking ahead about, especially if some of these things spiral out of control and there isn't a coherent, effective, humane response on the local and federal level, then this is going to be a long running story. And the moments, the the weeks and days before an election, well, certainly in other countries, in, in the countries that I focused on in my own academic work, um, they can be very tense and they can be, um, you know, prone to bouts of violence because people are in a mode of competition. And especially when they're worried about whether the other side will accept the outcomes of elections, that obviously raises the stakes. Now, in the U.S., we don't have as much of an effect of that pre-election because generally speaking at least in you know at least in the um the last hundred years for the most part people expect the losers of elections to respect the outcomes what's scary about november though is that both sides more and more don't think the other 
will respect the outcome if it's not to their liking. So Trump or MAGA supporters, if they believe that if Trump wins, that a majority of Democrats will not consider that legitimate. And um, Democrats fear that if Biden wins, um, many MAGA Trump supporters will not consider that result legitimate. So in some sense, both sides do have legitimate reasons to be concerned about this. So in that kind of context, you really have a situation that can get out of hand, that every, all of these things are building and even the legitimacy of the election is going to be um, questioned by one side, both sides, whatever, that to, that's really what gets me worried. And, I'm, and I, what, my, my worst case scenario is that Trump wins in part because he's able to spin COVID to his advantage, that he was the one who was calling for lockdowns to be lifted and all that stuff and saying that, hey, it could have been a lot worse. And then he's the one who's also saying that look what Democrats want. They want chaos. They want anarchy. They're on the side of the, the looters. That's what he'll say. And that's what he thinks. We know this. Yeah. Um, so that and then Trump wins. And there's also questions about legitimacy because of mail-in ballots and voter suppression and in urban areas and um, COVID and the fact that, you know, is everyone going to be able to vote in the normal way or will some people be disinclined to vote? You have more legitimacy questions around voting this time around. And so Trump wins in this scenario. And um, left, not just left nihilists, but ordinary Democrats say this time we definitely don't think it's legitimate. We didn't think it was le that legitimate the first time around, but now it's even less legitimate. And you know what? We're not really down with four more years of this. Like even if it is democratically legitimate, they won't be able to get their head around how their fellow Americans, after everything that's happened, after more than a hundred thousand killed because of COVID, and after Trump's outright explicit racism, they're going to be like, come on, if democracy keeps on producing these shitty outcomes where our fellow Americans vote for someone who let tens of thousands of people die from COVID and is racist against a significant chunk of our country, i.e. black people, I just feel like that's going to really be the test for a lot of people where they'll say, hey, you know what? We're done with this democracy thing. Fuck this. The democracy doesn't work. It's yeah. rigged, and you know what? We're done. Yeah. Look, uh, yeah. The, the difference, I think, also with the moment with Nixon uh, and today, though, and we're actually, I was discussing this with uh, our, our friend and, and you know, former guest uh, Ben Haddad uh, the other day. The main difference is, is that, in a weird way, Nixon's appeal to law and order was an appeal to the center. And that was that the whole sort of, you know, silent majority stuff. And yeah, okay, you know, I mean, Nixon also did have a Southern strategy and that gets into the question of racism and and uh, how, how it's, is, how it actually is embedded in American politics and the American sort of body politic, how specifically it is and the, the sort of nuances of that. But um, the difference with Trump is that he is actually not pursuing a Nixonian strategy, even though he is, you know, uh, nominally on the side of law and order by tweeting these very menacing threats about, like, basically, you know, 
releasing dogs on protesters and whatever the hell yeah. else he's, he's saying. Um, he's actually not even trying to appeal to any kind of center. He's actually just dividing it further. And the pickle that I think America finds itself now is that in general, you know, any sort of responsible president would uh, try and sort of calm these things down. Trump is not doing that. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the left Democrats are a little hamstrung in this because if, uh, you know, the, the smart play right now would be to try and fill that void and um, quite frankly, try and do that which Obama did at the end of his term, uh, which was to say, to acknowledge that this is a very naughty problem, that uh, policing is dangerous work, that there are obviously very bad people among police and this kind of violence has to stop and, you know, cleanups have to happen. But it has to be a kind of conciliatory speech. I, Biden, I'm not sure if he's enough of an orator or if he's too late in his life to be able to conjure up that kind of gravitas and ability to, you know, do that kind of speech right now, that would be required. But even more broadly, and this is, goes to the question of, um, of polarization, um, you know, like, uh, I think a large part, and this goes back to how, you know, whatever the hell is going out, going on in the streets and the different cities and however it's different from what I saw and whatever, um, it's being perceived in the country as uh, something akin to 1968 and therefore conjuring up all the sort of levels of, of justice and, uh, uh, you know, these, these existential values questions. And therefore, um, you're, you're, I, I don't know, I, I, I think it would be very hard for any Democrat uh, to give that kind of speech right now because the Democratic Party is so... Uh, angry about this um, and, you know, trying to find the center might be so, so difficult for even the most talented politician uh, that it's not going to be like Nixon. It's going to be much worse is because Trump doesn't have to be repentant. He's not going to take the center. He's just he's polarizing this in a big way. And the other side is playing along because, you know, this is not something that one compromises over. And it's it feels like it's it's getting worse and worse in that direction. This is not something that we can talk about in a, uh, well, let's look at the holistic picture. And that's, I think, the, the danger of this, because it is kind of like, uh, you know, the Instagram phenomenon, the sort of the, the, the little clips of video. I think Ben Judah, you know, tweeted at us at one point that, you know, what do we think about the fact that these protests are now hitting European capitals and that it's spreading by social media? Yeah. The whole thing is, is this kind of, you know, thing that exists almost outside of reality or it's creating its own reality, you know, and that's having impact on politics and Trump is making it worse. The Democrats can't like bridge the middle. It, that's that to me is the shape of what's really horrible about this, like really troubling heading into November, um, you know, to extend what you were saying about, you know, the, the lack of legitimacy. It's 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 not just that legitimacy won't be recognized. It's that I think we might be helpless to do anything about it. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree that Biden is not um, well placed to rise to the occasion. This is where leadership matters, and yeah. you know, uh, and I think this is also where the fact that Trump is president, you know, it feels 
it creates such a gaping hole because generally speaking, you would expect the president to at least say, as you said, Demir, words of conciliation, that whatever the actual policy preferences are, you expect the president to try to at least offer a pretense of of talking about unity and coming together as Americans and all that. But you really feel it when you're realizing that there's no one on the federal level um, who can play that role. I mean, that I think that for us, at least in our lifetimes and probably for um, most of American history, the president has generally been able to engage in that kind of oratory um, and rhetoric. In that sense, Trump is unprecedented. And, you know, we can debate how much that actually matters. It probably matters at least a little bit. That said, because people know that Trump is not going to rise to the occasion now or ever, that there's certainly a vacuum, but then people can actually fill the vacuum. And, you know, Mark Schleifer, I see in the comments, is saying Killer Mike 2020, that you do have local leaders and, you know, so for Killer Mike in Atlanta – who has a long history in, in the city and is well-respected, came out and gave an amazing speech, right? So, and also the mayor of Atlanta, um, Keisha Bottoms, also gave a remarkable speech. So there is an, you know, I hope we'll see more of that where on the local level people say, okay, we don't have national leadership. We're a federalist system. That's for better and worse. I mean, it's for worse in that we don't have someone who can unify Americans behind a, you know, a shared message. At the same time, part of me is all, almost happy that um, Trump isn't taking more of an initiative and leading because that could actually be disastrous in its own right. So it's always just be careful what you wish for. I like that Trump is sort of absent because I don't think Trump – can actually do anything positive, even if he tried and even if he wanted to act like a president. He's not capable of doing that. So we're maybe better off thinking beyond him at this point, right? What, what initiative could he take, you think, though? Like, I mean, that you think would be bad. I mean, I, I think he's taking plenty of initiative. That's the other thing. I, I think it's a mistake to think that he's, he's sort of hamstrung by this. I think he's playing the, the game that he knows. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily thinking about it. It just comes instinctively to him. But what I was outlining before... Uh, his, his, his whole style of politics is to drive deeper wedges, and this is the ultimate wedge. I mean, it's it's not just that he's pouring gasoline on the fire. It's that yeah, we talked about this in the previous episode. It's the fact that that you know the very fact of Trump uh, makes everyone do the not Trump. And that is like ne the negation of whatever he's doing. Someone else does. So you're right. There have been some really good speeches. The Atlanta mayor's speech was was exactly what's necessary. And I hope her star rises as a result of this onto a national stage and we see more of her. But that's what's required. I'm not seeing it yet. It's early times, you know, and there's plenty of time between now and and, uh, and the elections for, uh, you know, for, for that that high ground to be taken. And I'm not I'm not pretending that it's uh, it's an easy thing to do. Uh, it takes it takes uh, political skill. It takes stones and it, you have to find the right way to do it. But um but I hope it happens sooner rather than later because it's times of wasting and it's um, it, it ain't good. Yeah, yeah, and this is where so as 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 worried as I am about November and all the things we've been talking about. So I am very very fearful. That is my instinct. But I also know, and it's sort of like a banal cliche aphorism or whatever. And it also seems to like figure in some of the books I've been reading. I think you know I mentioned in our our previous podcast this. Uh, this book called The Blood of the Lamb by um, 
of Peter DeVries. There we go. Here it is. Let me – people can see up. us. Yeah. Here's, here's the book. I'm yeah. almost done. It's really good. Anyway, but it sort of gets – it has a kind of um, – I don't know if conservative bent is the right word, but this idea that things – Things are never really as bad as they could actually be. Like mm -hmm. things can be really bad and it's actually sure. a story of loss and tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but usually we overestimate how bad things are, particularly when we're in the present moment. So that's why, you know, there's always a temptation to write something in the midst of moments like this. Like I don't want to write an article about any of this right now because I just don't know if I can be – sufficiently dispassionate. I don't know if my instincts are correct. And as you know, I think that I've been open about this. I do actually listen to my gut and I'm not going to pretend that I'm some, some sort of platonic ideal of a dispassionate academic because no one is ultimately right. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's really important to wait. Things seem really bad at this particular moment because we're in the moment. They could be not as bad three weeks from now. COVID, COVID is a similar thing. I mean, it literally seemed like the world was in in process of ending. I, and also, Demir, I'm curious what you think about this, and then and then I guess we'll start to close up. But um, you know, it's also amazing to me how perception can shift so rapidly in the sense that literally last week, COVID was the number one issue. And our friend Ben Haddad tweeted this. He's like, remember COVID-19? He tweeted Literally. that while we were – but he tweeted that as we were approaching the protests where, where people were getting tear gassed. That was the beauty of it. We were literally walking up there and, and he turns to me. He's like, my god, you remember COVID-19? I, I think he tweeted it. Or maybe he tweeted afterwards. But he said that to me as we were approaching you know, the, the hot part of the protest in front of the White House. Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's I, I do think so. yeah, go on. But yeah, finish finish your thought like about about COVID and things shifting. Like we literally like I, I mean, we forgot about social distancing. I like no one's thinking about this stuff anymore. There is a risk of these could be like mass protests can potentially be super spreader events. I don't think they will be because they're outdoor. And, you know, my position is that. Well, I, I don't, it's not just my position. I just think it's a scientific consensus. Outdoor, the risk of outdoor transmission is relatively low. That said, if people are in really close quarters, there could be spikes in various parts of the country. But no one really seems to be caring about that. And that is such a remarkable shift in perception that we've – as a country, we seem to have moved on. And this actually gets to what we've been talking about in several episodes and it's also similar to what appears to have happened with um, the Spanish flu of 1918 and, and 19, that it lasts for a certain period of time. Then there's a kind of narrative shift or a mass shift in perception where people decide – maybe decide is not the right word. But people in a sense decide that this is no longer the number one issue and they move on with their lives despite – the very high numbers of people dead and, and, you know, with severe illness. And the fact that could happen so quickly and maybe, maybe the time for time frame for that is condensed because of social media, just because everything seems to move more quickly where 80 years ago it would have taken a year to have this mass shift in perception where now I don't think COVID-19, COVID-19, it seems that we're culturally we're, – we're, we're moving beyond it culturally. It's no longer the primary thing in our cultural moment. I find that remarkable and maybe it's premature. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's, it's – uh, 
it is the social media thing that's driving all of this. You know, here, here's the thing. Uh, uh, watcher, listener, Devin RW once said, I don't think protesters will accept a conciliatory speech with promises of action. Um, what do you think about that? I here my my again. I, I I have no way to actually know because I don't know whether the situation is um, uh, the same everywhere. But again, it, it might be true that protesters won't accept that. But I'm I'm wondering who exactly the the critical mass of the protesters are in this. Again, given what I you know. Uh, what I saw yesterday, it wasn't sort of, again, yesterday it wasn't a very broad-based uh, movement that I saw. It was uh, young people. And maybe young people who feel like there's nothing for them, they won't accept this. But I wonder what that, where that leads our politics, you know, that, that uh, a speech trying to bring everyone together won't work. I, you're, you're, maybe you're creating a, a you know, a, a cohort of, of just like dead enders on a lot of this stuff that just, you know, have already rejected the system. And that, you know, that, that video of the, the, the flag getting burnt, what I saw last night, maybe that's, um, that's indicative of like, you know, a whole younger generation, uh, and, you know, hard, hard on the left activists plus African Americans who really are there. And it's like, it's over for them that they're, that they're, tuning out and this is their mode. I'm, I'm not that pessimistic, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, dead, the, the question of how many dead enders are there in American public life is an interesting one. And there's probably some polling, obviously not, not recent enough to, to be able to shed light on right now. But, yeah. you know, what we do know about um, the black community in America, though, is that it's not generally, it's not like this, what, you know, the, the woke people are, you know, white, middle class to upper upper middle class and upper upper middle class folks who are the ones who you know at least from what the polling says have this kind of more dead end nihilist a system like they kind of or they're overcompensating or whatever you know and and if 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 that was also true for the vast majority of black american voters then they wouldn't have voted for Joe Biden. And there's a reason. I mean, this is not so this is where I think there could be a disjuncture between the left nihilists and the mainstream of the black community, which is not necessarily calling for burning it down, because if there was burning it down, they're the ones who would be most effective. So I, right, I think right. that's important. That's important to remember. And that's why there's a lot of, in my view, really kind of um, borderline racist or actually racist talk from the woke folks when they say that um, they're basically – I have seen things that essentially say to one degree or another, be careful about um, condemning looting. That That's almost like you're, you're being um, – Basically, they're suggesting this is the way black people protest and you're being a moral – you're kind of acting in a way of like white – you're imposing your white neo-colonial imperialistic view. It's actually outrageous. The way the way these woke folks talk about people of color and, and I'm glad that more and more people are realizing it is that it's this, it's like this weird inverse racism of talking about – talking about as if all black people are victims or want to be seen as victims or the fact that all black people have only one political view and there isn't diversity in what is an actually quite diverse community. And this gets into the whole like, oh, when people say like 
there are no real black Republicans because if a black person is a Republican, then they basically undo their blackness. And unfortunately, there's some mainstream folks who engage in that kind of, I think, very, very problematic discourse or that they they sort of say that they, they talk that poor equals black. And I'm like, are you guys, this is crazy. This is crazy. Poor is not shorthand for black. Yeah. Black is not shorthand for poor. Yeah, no. I, I, and that's, you know, again, though, it, it gets back to uh, how this is still very much just all getting filtered through uh, just these, these small clips that appear on social media without any context. I mean, that's, again, I, I just keep coming back to that. That, to me, is the was the thing that I, I, I most got from last night um, was uh, that, you know, one could, one can easily see several stories coming out of a couple of the clips that I saw last night, only here in D.C., um, and none of them, I think, properly capture what's happening. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, uh, you know, what's to be done about that. Nothing, I guess. I mean, it's it's the reality of what we live in, how we do politics and how events play out these days is that uh, they, they necessarily play out in this sort of clipped fashion. Um, but I think it behooves us all to just go really slow on this. Um, you know, uh, obviously, the anger will play itself out. The protests will play themselves out. Let's hope that, that there aren't uh, real overreactions on any side that really cause mass tragedies, uh, be they in like destruction of lives, uh, destruction of cities, like none of that, none of that is any good. And it's, it's really hard to undo. Uh, but you know, especially for us watching, um, and trying to make sense of this, uh, I think it's, 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 it's best to try and, uh, uh, and think broader than what you're just seeing on television, on social media, because I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a pair of blinders. Uh, Again, you know, it's interesting the whole the whole fact that we had um, COVID right now. I think it's 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 led us to um, listen to to experience our reality through social media and through the news in a way that was true before, but is even more true now because we just we haven't been going out. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be. Uh, dealing with life and doing politics that way, because uh, I think you're, we're operating on, on, on very, very uh, partial data. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a, you know, um, a good, somewhat pessimistic note to, to kind of <laughs> begin ending. I'll say that the other part of my af the aphorism. So one part is that things are never as bad as they seem. You know what the, the reverse of that is, though? Things are never as good as they seem yeah, either. Yeah, right, 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 right. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, every, everything, you, you can't have it both ways. I mean, right. uh, but, you know, so I'll also just say to, to, to everyone who's watching, first of all, thanks thanks for joining us. Uh, this is semi-impromptu. I just, you know, texted Demir earlier today. I'm like, hey, man, like we got a lot in our minds. Let's talk about it and, you know, share our thoughts with uh, with our with listeners and anyone who's similarly concerned. This is this is part of the podcast. It's called The Wisdom of Crowds. And I would just tell for people who aren't familiar to go on our website. It's um, wisdom of crowds dot live. You can find all of our episodes there. Also, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. So search for The Wisdom of Crowds, and you'll find all of our episodes to listen to. Um, and I hope you enjoy some of them or whatever, <laughs> or maybe maybe you don't, but that's still fine too, I guess. 
Um, we were trying to ramp up production. We're trying to do this more often. We're experimenting with different mediums. That's why we're doing something like this where you can actually see us in real time. Um, we feel that this is an important way to talk to people who, uh, you know, have some of our similar concerns and care about the issues that we care about, culture, identity, democracy, what it means to live in a democratic society. You know, that's that's the things that we care about. So thanks for joining and um, join us next time. Demir, any final thoughts? No, that just about wraps it up for me too, Shadi. Uh, thanks, everyone. Pleasure being with you. Shadi, always pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and, good uh, to see you, Demir. See yeah, you soon in D.C., I hope. Yeah, yeah okay. see you soon. All right, Later. bye-bye. Bye.